In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. This is the 21st Sunday after Pentecost, and so we only have three more weeks in this season after Pentecost, this long green season that we've been in for many months. At the end of November, we will start Advent, which is the first Sunday of the church year. So a new church year will be starting in just a few weeks. We'll be starting uh, that year with uh, preparation uh, for the birth of Christ, and we will be transitioning from Luke's gospel to Matthew's gospel as we follow that through the coming year. So we just have a couple of more weeks here in Luke's gospel, and we are really very near the end of uh, that uh, life of Christ in ministry. We start here in chapter 19 with Jesus entering into Jericho, and at the end of chapter 19 is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The triumphal entry we celebrate as Palm Sunday when he comes in and he cleanses the temple and he preaches for that week uh, before he is uh, arrested and crucified. So we're uh, very near the end of this discourse, and you'll remember that Jesus is entering into uh, Jericho after leaving the region of Galilee, so Galilee is where most of his ministry takes place, he travels uh, down the Jordan River. He is on the east side of the Jordan River where Moses has uh, his uh, last uh, pronouncements that we read in Deuteronomy. And then he crosses the Jordan River where Joshua crosses. And of course, Joshua and Jesus are the same name, Yeshua, the salvation of Israel. And he crosses the Jordan River and goes to Jericho, where you'll remember the first battle is fought by the nation of Israel as they start to take uh, the promised land. You may remember that in the book of Joshua, we read that after Jericho is demolished, after the walls are broken down, that the Lord through Joshua says, let him be cursed that rebuilds these walls in this city. So this is a city of curse. It has been Rebuilt, And so Jesus is entering into a city of cursing and he is bringing uh, the kingdom of God. He's bringing the kingdom of God in a very radically different way than we saw Moses and Joshua do it uh, by the sword and through battle, through military might. Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God in a way that calls the hearer to repent and to have a, a change of heart, to become a new creature in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And to emphasize what that means, this is not a new idea, but an ancient one that the Lord has always been calling the people of God to, even though they've missed that. And we see it here in the book of Isaiah. We see the prophet Isaiah talking about the kingdom of God and talking about this transformation of the heart. He says, your Sabbaths stink. Your sacrifices stink. Your offerings stink in my nostrils. So what is the Lord saying? Is he saying stop celebrating the Sabbath? Is he saying stop celebrating the feasts and fasts of the church? Forbid. But he's saying that they have to come out of a place of conviction and repentance. They can't be a kind of a, oh, I'm sorry, that isn't really coming from the heart. That's what abusers, what narcissists, what sociopaths do. They think, I should be able to treat you the way I want, and then I should be able to say I'm sorry, and you should forget about everything that I've done, and let me go back to being the person that I have always been. And this is who Israel is. 
Israel is saying, we're going to keep on sinning the way that we've been sinning. We're going to keep on acting the way we have been acting. And if we apologize and we celebrate a feast and we make an offering, then you're supposed to forget all about it and then let us continue. And he calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the worst thing to call them, isn't it? Because Sodom and Gomorrah was in the depths of sexual depravity. And sexual depravity, of course, links us to people who are depraved as well. And it's a very hard bond to break. It becomes a spiritual bond. And rather than going into the details of the kind of depravity we read about in Sodom and Gomorrah, we just need to be able to state what is uh, the sexual law, what is the understanding of uh, pure sexual living that the Lord calls us into. And um, it's very complex. I'll try to simplify it for you. Uh, let's see. Chastity outside of marriage. Fidelity in marriage. Simple enough? Chastity outside of marriage. Fidelity in marriage. And we could spend lots of time talking about all different ways to break that law. That's what the world wants to do. It wants to get into the nitty gritty and the details of how to break that law. But we don't need to go into that. What we do need to do is we do need to focus on what it means to lead sexually moral lives and to be brides of Christ. See, the bride of Christ is faithful. We are called to be the brides of Christ. We are called to be faithful to the Lord. We are called to, to love the Lord. We're called to link ourselves to Him, to be joined to Him, to dwell with Him. And when we desire to live with Him, when we desire to live in His house and to live in His ways then we will be able to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. That love and that opening to the ways of God allow us to be transformed, to be washed, to be made clean. And when we're washed and made clean by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Lord teaches us again how to do this very complex act of living in righteousness. Are you ready? Because you know the Bible is very complex. Are you ready for this difficult lesson? He says at the bottom of your program, this is Isaiah chapter 1, at the end of verse 16, he says, cease doing evil, learn to do good. Didn't I tell you that was going to be complex? Cease to do evil, learn to do good. You can see why people have such a tough time reading scripture, right? <laughs> Cease to do evil, learn to do good. And what does that mean, learn to do good? Learning to good, do good is like anything else that we learn. Right? Everything that we learn, we learn through practice. We learn through practice. We learn by watching others. Right? If we're going to learn how to do something, we watch somebody else do it and we say, oh, how did you do that? And then they show us and then we try it ourselves and they say, oh no, a little bit more like this. A little bit more like that. Try it a little bit differently this way. Hold it like this. And then we practice and then the, the mentor again says, yeah, you're doing it right. Try to do it a little bit more this way. Whatever it is that we're learning how to do. Right? We come through practice. We come through learning how by watching the mentor and doing good. And so if we're going to learn to do good, we've got to practice. And we've got to be around mentors, people who can show us how to do good. We've got to learn from people around us how to do good. There's no other way but to desire to live and be willing to be obedient to God. And that's the mystery 
about Zacchaeus that we don't really see. The most beautiful part, I think, about this story of Zacchaeus is not mentioned. And that is what happened to Zacchaeus and his heart. What changed? How did he all of a sudden, as the scriptures say, decide that he was seeking to see who Jesus was? That moment when his heart changed, when he all of a sudden thought, wait a minute, who is this Jesus? And what is he about? And I want to see him. That, that desire, that sudden flame of desire in his heart to see the Lord, that's that moment of mystery, that moment of conviction, of belief, of faith, that we get no mention of. But we see the result. Everything that comes after this is works. It's, it's Zacchaeus responding through his faith. His faith is desire to, to know Jesus, to seek him. And when he has that desire, he humbles himself. He humbles himself and he does things that you would not expect a chief tax collector and a rich man to do. We've talked before about what it means to be a tax collector, how uh, they are villains of the nation of Israel because they're traitors. They're serving the Romans. They're serving Herod. They're undermining the, the faith and the stability of Israel. He's not only a tax collector, but he's a chief tax collector, which means that he's a, an elderly man. He's a seasoned man. And we read that he's a rich man. And we've talked before about in the ancient Near East, the expectations for a rich man and for an elderly man and the way that he behaves. And in, in ancient traditional cultures, a wealthy man, an elderly man, is never supposed to run. That's completely humiliating for an elderly man to run. And we see elderly men run throughout Scripture from Abraham to the father of the prodigal son, right? They run. And we're supposed to read that and say, what? What is he doing? So he runs, he hurries to see Jesus, and he does another thing that's only fit for boys, right? For small children. He climbs a tree. Elderly men, rich men, are not supposed to climb trees. This is what children do, what boys do. And he climbs a tree to see Jesus. He's supposed to part the crowd and say, you know, don't you know who I am? Pardon me. I'm supposed to be in front. But out of his humility and his deep desire to see Jesus, he's willing to humble himself to run and to climb so that he can see Jesus. And everything comes out of that. So that Jesus says, I'm going to go to your house. And we could talk for a week about what that means. For Jesus to say, I'm going to your house. Because this is the promise that we see from the Garden of Eden to the Revelation. That is God's desire to dwell with us. God's desire to live with us, to tabernacle with us. He wants to be with us. He wants to be in our hearts. He wants to be in our homes, in our daily lives. The Lord wants to be near to us. And so he says to Zacchaeus, I'm going to be near to you. And then we don't hear anything again about the Lord preaching to him, teaching him, out of his love of Christ, out of this desire to come to know Christ is coming forth these works, these beautiful works of repentance and of reconciliation. Because we know that repentance comes with, right, works of repairing, works of reconciliation. 
When we really repent, then we make right. We do all that we can to make right. And coming out of Zacchaeus now like a fountain is this desire for him to restore and to make right the wrong that he's done. We can hear his exuberance, his enthusiasm. He isn't bargaining with Jesus. What do you think? Is two times? Would that be good enough, two times? Would that fit, right? He's not negotiating what it's going to take to make it right. He says four times. Four times I will restore I'll give back everything that I stole. Right? So he's multiplying his abundance, multiplying his, his forgiveness and his restoration of what is right because his heart has been changed. And Jesus says that he came to seek, to seek the lost and to save them. To seek and to save. And that seeking and saving comes in the dwelling, the indwelling, the dwelling with our Heavenly Father. And we see St. Paul describe what this looks like in community in the second letter to the Thessalonians chapter 1. St. Paul says, your faith is growing and the love of every one of you for another is increasing. So when we live in Christians, when we dwell with Christ, when we allow our hearts to be changed, the evidence of that is in our growing faith and our love for one another. It's not our programs, it's not our evangelism techniques, as wonderful as all those things are, the sign of the church is our love for one another. And this is completely, this is completely antithetical to what the world teaches. The world says, Rich should hate poor, and poor should hate rich, right? Urban should hate rural, men should hate women, right? Races should hate one another, ethnicities should hate one another, we should be divided. And the church loves, the church teaches that we are one, that we are one in Christ, and that we are supposed to be loving one another and caring for one another, is the antithesis of what the world teaches. And when we do that, when we do that, the world will persecute us. Because the world promotes hate and division. But when we, have, when we have the unity of faith, then the Lord through the power of his Holy Spirit gives us steadfastness and enduring. Steadfastness and enduring through the power of his Holy Spirit for those who obey the gospel. And what we understand is that our obedience to the gospel, our obeying to the Lord is again about dwelling with him and the consequence of not obeying him, the consequence of disobedience, is to remove Christ from our midst, to go away from his midst. So that we read about, we read about the, the consequences of sin as a removal of God from our presence. We read in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, St. Paul says, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. That is what eternal destruction is. It is away from the presence of the Lord. To be near to Christ is to be in eternity with Him. To be away from Him is to be open to that eternal destruction. So our nearness to Him, our nearness, our desire, our longing, our thirsting, our willing to humiliate ourselves the way Zacchaeus did, to run and to climb trees, to do anything we can to come near to Christ is to be in that eternal bliss with Him. And when we do that, 
the Lord fulfills every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power. See, we don't do work in order to have faith. We have faith and out of that comes work. And so often people have taught or thought that faith and works are opposed to one another, that somehow they're distant from one another. They're two sides of the same coin. They're the polarity of magnetism. They're as north as the south. They don't live apart from one another. But out of faith come these works by the power of God. The faith of works, the work of faith, that Jesus' name may be glorified. That Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. That Jesus be glorified in you and you in him. When that desire for love and obedience and, and the righteousness of God is in our hearts, then our lives proclaim and they show His glory. Our lives, our lives reveal His glory. How cool is that? And He is going to reveal Himself through us by reasoning with us. Isn't that incredible? At the end of... This, this passage from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 118, on the top of page 2 of your bulletins, he says, the Lord says, come now, let us reason together. Is that like the Lord's going to learn a little bit from us and we're going to learn a little bit from Him? We're going to chat? No, it means that we're going to submit to His will. We're going to submit to His will. We're going to, to come into new knowledge, to new understanding, to new ways of seeing the way that we had seen the world is going to change. The way that we've seen one another is going to change. The way that we've thought about ourselves, the way that we've thought about the creation, the way that we think about other people is all going to be transformed. And that reasoning, that, that living with the Lord is going to so transform our hearts and our minds that, that that desire to see Him and to know Him will come into our hearts like Zacchaeus where we will throw off all fear of humility, all fear of not having enough, all fear of not having the wealth and the power and the prestige and all those things that we desire to accumulate, all that will just be dropped away and we'll say, Lord, I give everything for you. I give everything for your kingdom. I give everything for your presence and for your power and for your grace. May we be transformed as Zacchaeus was transformed. And may we run and climb to see the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.